As you're taking your seats, if you would, please turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 13. Isaiah, chapter 13. We'll read the whole chapter in just a moment. There are some graphic descriptions of war in this passage. Are they hard to read? Sometimes. But I also hope it'll show us that God's word is not removed, it's not distant, it is always relevant, it is familiar with life on a fallen earth, an imperfect earth. As it says elsewhere, he knows our frame. He knows what life is like, what our life is like. So with that, let's read Isaiah 13. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there, but wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell, and there wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word now. Let's pray. 
Our God, you are good. And what you do is good. What you do sometimes confuses us and perplexes us because we cannot see behind the scenes, behind the curtain. We see only what we see here on this earth. We do not see the backside of the grand tapestry that you are weaving. And so, Father, we need your wisdom. We need your insight. We need your truth. Truth. In your light, we see light, the Psalms say. So we pray now, give us light, give us truth. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That was true in Isaiah's day. It's still true now. It was true in the 8th century B.C. before Christ when Israel was caught in the crossfire of ancient Near Eastern warriors. And it's still true today, 2021 A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, when the Lord's people suffer small p persecution in America and big p persecution in Afghanistan and China and elsewhere. And that was true when B.C. changed to A.D. God was doing all that he pleased to do when he ordained that his son, our Savior, would die on a cross in our place suffering for our evil so that we might never experience the horrors that are even worse than what's described in this passage so that the remnant might have a refuge, a shelter from the world's anger, a shelter, more importantly, from the Lord's righteous anger. Before we move on, yes, I know non-Christians are also suffering in places like Afghanistan. Evil men are not always picky about who they pick on. But God is judging evil in Isaiah 13. This follows what's called the triumph of grace in Isaiah 1 through 12. Isaiah 13 is the beginning of the oracles against foreign nations. It comes after one geopolitical power threatened Israel's existence, Assyria. And after this section, we're in now, chapters 13, it goes through about chapter 27, you'll see the Assyrian threat part two, starting in chapter 28. And so in between these two geopolitical crises for God's people, God's prophet reminds God's people who's in charge. Who's in charge? It's the king, the holy one of Israel, the one who's ruling, reigning, controlling everything. And everybody else is just a bit player in the grand drama. Who needed to know that? Who needs to know that? Multiple people. The oppressed but faithful remnant of God's people, they need this relief, this reassurance. God has not forgotten them. The rebellious, those who claim to be God's people, those who didn't, the rebellious, they needed this warning. Your end will come. You are not invincible. And then what about the conflicted? Well, they needed this warning. Who do I mean, by the way? Well, don't you think God's people were tempted to lose faith, to lose heart in all this? Don't you think they saw mighty nations conquering others and said, well, what if I just hitch my wagon to them? What if I simply seek their protection? God is saying, good luck with that. Their protection won't last. One day they will be conquered. And where will you turn then when your other gods, your other sources of ultimate comfort and security, when they fail you, where will you turn then? How about the place you should have turned all along? Isaiah uses a phrase, you probably already noticed it two to three times in this passage, at least 
22 times in the book as a whole, the day of the Lord. It means the day of the Lord's military victory. When would that be and why is that important? Well, in short, the day of the Lord is bad news for Babylon and the prideful and good news for the remnant whom they harm. That's what we see. That was a long intro, so let's get to our four points. First, the day of the Lord is near no matter who you are or when you live. The day of the Lord is near no matter who you are or when you live. Verses 1 to 6. Part of that statement comes from verse 6, but let me try to explain the rest. The day of the Lord, it's first mentioned in verse 6, but it's described much earlier. Verse 1 says, this is an oracle concerning Babylon. Babylon is both the current enemy of God's people, part of Assyria from Isaiah's perspective, and also their future enemy. Another kingdom will arise from them. And it's also representing all who would be like them throughout history. We'll say more about that. But this oracle says Babylon is going down. Verse 2, on a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. God is mustering his troops, as verse 4 says, mustering them on a bare hill, nothing to block the view of the signal, the battle flag, the rallying point. Verse 3, I myself, have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. Now verse 3 mentions God's consecrated ones, the same word that might be translated sanctified or saints in a different context. So let me clarify, when it says God has commanded my consecrated ones to execute my anger, it does not mean that God is calling you or other Christians to declare holy war on all the sin that you see wherever you live and work and play. In case there was any confusion about that, it doesn't mean that. You see, when John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you, he meant your own sin. Kill your own sin. But here God has consecrated or set apart warriors for his distinct purpose. Now, these warriors probably didn't know that. Alec Moitier says, it is not like God is approving of their arrogance and pride, the proudly exalting ones, verse 2, verse 11 says. But he says, quote, in all their arrogance, he owns them, God owns them, and directs the overflowings of their arrogance to his own ends. You see, this is Isaiah 10 all over again. God uses evil instruments for God's own righteous purposes. And so Babylon will be destroyed. Verses 4 and 5 say you can hear it coming. Verse 6 spells it out. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. It's near. It's imminent. It could come in any minute. And here things get a wee bit tricky because Babylon was basically wiped out 150 years after this. Then again, some of the prophecy seems like the end of the world as we know it stuff. And in a sense, both of those things are the case, and intentionally so. One author says the final day of judgment, the final day of the Lord, is symbolized in history by wars such as this one. In other words, we can confirm from history that Babylon got wiped out, but why is its destruction described in these cosmic, larger-than-life terms? Look at verse 10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations 
will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Was the creation undone during Babylon's destruction? The one that's already happened. It describes Babylon's destruction this way because, quote, it anticipates and points to the eventual fall of the whole world system which stands in opposition to God. See, Babylon fell, but the spirit of Babylon lived on. And God would make the spirit of Babylon fall again one day. Babylon was wiped out. It was ugly. But just because your mailing address isn't in Babylon doesn't mean you should tune out. Because if you're one of God's people who have trusted in Christ, who occasionally think that life isn't fair, your ears should perk up when you read Isaiah 13 because it says all the mighty, all the prideful, arrogant people who do not acknowledge God as the fount of life and the light of men, who exemplify the Babylonian spirit, all of them will be humbled and brought low one day. And if you're not one of God's people, there's a warning here. If you don't think about God, if you do not give Him glory for your accomplishments, God will not let you steal His glory. He will loudly declare His presence one day and get the credit, the glory that He deserves. You see, most of us have never been to Babylon. Because amongst other reasons, it was utterly ruined in the 2nd century, or, or definitely in the 6th century A.D., but you see, you cannot avoid the day of the Lord. It will come. The only question is, will it be judgment for you who rebel against God, or will, be it re will it be relief for you when you see God finally defeat the enemies of God and the enemies of His people? The day of the Lord is coming. Do you live like that is reality and not just some ghost story? Next, we see this. Secondly, the day of the Lord displays God's anger against unrepentant sin. The day of the Lord displays God's anger against unrepentant sin. Verses 6 to 16. Now, once again, we're going to start at the end of the section. Okay, Verse 13 says, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. It's the same day that's mentioned in verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Same day as verse 6, wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. The final day of the Lord will display His anger against unrepentant sin. So will the other preview days throughout history, like the one that wiped out Babylon. That day... Any of those days will be scary. And why do we need to know that? You see, God's people are a peculiar people, as one translation of 1 Peter says. Distinct, set apart. And their distinctiveness has often made them the target of the world's hostility throughout history. God's people have been oppressed, harassed, mistreated, sometimes even martyred, killed for their faith. And meanwhile... They, we, watch other nations mistreat them, steal their riches. Don't you think God's people were just a bit jealous? Don't you think they wondered at times why God was asleep at the wheel, so it seemed? And of course, God was often allowing bad things 
for various reasons, but especially to cause his people to repent and seek him. But don't you think God's people in every age have wondered if all of this is worth it? Wondered if the cost of discipleship was too high, too costly? That was certainly a temptation for Ahaz back in Isaiah 7. He didn't want to trust God. He wanted a sure thing. So he bribed the king of Assyria to save them from their other enemies. And that worked for a while until the king of Assyria turned and invaded Israel. Part of Israel, the northern kingdom, was defeated, hauled away into exile because of their Assyrian saviors, whose most important city was Babylon which then became the capital city of the next great empire, which of course would later fall. Babylon, like the city of Babel before it, was great. But its greatness did not last. Commentators call Babylon the symbol of all world empires opposed to the Lord, as well as the locus of arrogant self-sufficiency. Think Tower of Babel again. Let us make a name for ourselves. And finally, the story of Babylon was, for Isaiah, the story of all nations that defy God. You see, Babylon looks so much like what we want. We want beauty, and Babylon was definitely beautiful. Look at verse 19. We want greatness and fame, a name for ourselves. We want might. We want power. But God is telling us, be careful what you wish for. Because this is what will happen to the one whose beauty you envy. Verses 7 and 8, it'll be sheer terror and panic. It will be like creation itself coming undone, verses 10 through 13. And there will be nowhere to go, verses 14 through 16. They will be like hunted gazelles, shepherdless sheep, as someone says, helpless and hopeless, with everything to flee from and nowhere to flee. Verse 16 is the end, especially, is particularly disturbing. Of course, it's reportedly happening now in Afghanistan. You've seen the reports, some of you. The Taliban is demanding wives. Doesn't make you, if that doesn't make you angry and sad all at the same time, something might be wrong. But this is what will happen to people like Babylon one day. If you exhibit the pride of Babylon, then you'll meet the same fate as Babylon, the Lord's fierce anger. And sometimes God's anger looks like this, God withdrawing his protection and letting the dog-eat-dog world take over. Alec Moitier says, sin progressively makes people less human and less humane. Is this what you're jealous of? God seems to say to us. Is this whose protection you want? Do you want Babylon's protection? Do you want the protection of the latest, mightiest, wealthiest nation? Do you want to bask in her beauty and wealth and power? Because it won't last. And in all this, doesn't Babylon's future horror that awaits her, doesn't it make you give thanks for the refuge that you have in Christ? For the refuge that is God's Son? for his protection from God's wrath. It should make us thankful. Unless you don't know that protection and refuge, unless you've lived your life with God at an arm's length, not acknowledging him, not 
living by his instruction, not listening to his warnings, because frankly, you don't think you need a refuge or a safe place. But if you realize that's who you are and how you've lived, don't fear, because it's not too late. The day of the Lord comes, it says, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, and it is near, but it's not here yet. It is not too late to take refuge in Christ, to give thanks to God for his protection. Do it now if you haven't already. We see here that the day of the Lord, it displays God's anger against unrepentant sin. And the next thing we see is this, thirdly, the day of the Lord displays God's sovereignty over good and evil. The day of the Lord displays God's sovereignty over good and evil. You see it in verses 1 through 3 as well as verse 17. We've already said God is doing this. God is doing all that he pleases. God is commanding his troops, verse 2, mustering them to defeat the haughty and arrogant nations, Babylon specifically. Babylon, who represented a current threat in Isaiah's day, uh, would become an even bigger threat for God's people later. But you know, the Babylonians probably weren't Isaiah's primary audience for these words. Have you thought about that? Isaiah didn't have a live stream. Word of mouth can only travel so far. This oracle concerning Babylon was not necessarily for Babylonian ears. It was for Israelite ears, the ears of God's people. God's people needed this reminder. The same God who stirred up evil Assyria to judge Israel, the same God who promised that he would stir up someone else to defeat Assyria, back in chapter 10, verse 25, that same God could stir someone else up to defeat Babylon or any of the latest threats to God's people. And I know this gets confusing with Babylon, but Babylon was both part of Assyria as well as the seed of the next empire that would defeat Assyria and then come and harass Israel some more. But even then, Babylon would not last forever. Because what does it say in verse 17? God was going to stir up the Medes. I'm going to spare you more history than you've already had. Bottom line is this did happen. He stirred up the Medes to defeat the Babylonians. The Babylonians were prideful, arrogant. They did not love God. They did not love their neighbors. And the Medes, God's chosen instrument to defeat Babylon, they weren't very nice either. They don't care about money, verse 17 says. The Medes just love the slaughter and carnage of war. Verse 18 describes some of their merciless tactics. All of it reminds me of Alfred the butler's famous line in The Dark Knight. Some men aren't looking for anything logical like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. I always thought that was a good description of Satan, but maybe it's a good description of our sin nature run amok when God withdraws his restraining hand. As we said earlier, sin progressively makes people less human and less humane. And sometimes God withdraws his hand so that one evil, unhumane nation can defeat another evil nation so that eventually, after all their enemies beat each other up, God's people can be freed from tyranny. Because, because if you noticed what, what's coming up after this, did any of you peek ahead to Isaiah 14? Isaiah 14, 1, For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob 
and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Why is God letting evil nations duke it out so that his people might find rest from their oppressors? See, these oracles against foreign nations are saying God is still in control. You're oppressed by Assyria and later Babylon. You're surrounded by Philistia, chapter 14, Moab, chapter 15, Damascus and Syria, chapter 17, and more. But I am in charge. I made those nations rise so that you, my, peop my people, might draw close to me but I can squash all of them like bugs, and I will. And when that day comes, my people will taste and see my compassion and my goodness. I admit I don't have a list of five things for you to do this morning. It's more like this. Behold your God. Give thanks to him. Draw near in faith to him. This passage is saying to us, you're not the center of the universe. By extension, you will only accomplish or attempt great things for God when you realize how great your God is. What did Israel need to hear as they, what did, what did they need to do, excuse me, as they heard Isaiah 13? The same thing they needed to do in Isaiah 8 when God said, don't fear what the people fear, fear God. And as we said a few weeks ago, what does that mean? Ray Ortland Jr. says, dare to treat God as God. Don't respond to life in a way that makes God look weak and helpless and worthless. Start there. Know that he is God, mighty and sovereign and good and wise, not helpless, not weak, not worthless. Meditate upon that as you read the news, as you think about world conflicts, as you think about the guy in your office who just backstabs people and then gets promoted. As you think about the latest political intrigue, as you worry about whatever catastrophe seems to be brewing in your life, think about that. Behold God's sovereignty displayed in the day of the Lord and in all of life. That leads to our last point. I promise it'll be brief. Fourthly, the day of the Lord will humble Babylon and all her prideful imitators. Humble Babylon and all are prideful imitators. We see this a couple places. We've said before this day of the Lord, it's an actual day. When Babylon will be defeated from Isaiah's perspective, it's in the future. History confirms that it happened already. But it's also a preview of the last final day of the Lord when Christ comes again to defeat evil, to right every wrong, to make all the sad things come untrue. And of course, that is making Babylon into not just a city or a city-state, but also a symbol, which of course is how the New Testament talks about Babylon. 1 Peter 5, 13, Revelation 14, 16, 17, 18. And of course, it's also how the Old Testament talks about it. Verse 11, in this oracle concerning Babylon, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Is Isaiah talking about Babylon or about the whole world that's opposed to God there? Or both? Verse 19. In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms and the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Is that about Babylon's defeat? 
or the world's defeat, or both. Verse 20 and 22, it will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pinch his, pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. It's time, verse 22 says, is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. One author says verse 20 describes the local historical equivalent of what will be universal on the final day of the Lord. Beauty, riches, power, those things are not bad unless they make you love those things more than God. Unless they convince you that you are beautiful and mighty and that you do not need God. Again, from earlier, Babylon is the symbol of arrogant self-sufficiency. You see, it's hard to be humble when your city is known for one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. When your first ancestors tried to build a tower to the heavens so that you can make your name famous. Is that the mission of mankind? For all of us to make our name individually or collectively famous? Our mission is to make God's name famous throughout the earth. And if we don't do that, if we oppose that, then God will make his own name famous. If you imitate the spirit of Babylon, don't be surprised if God makes your home deserted, hollow, like verses 20 to 22. And if you are jealous of the spirit of Babylon, all of the world's might and wealth and power, don't be. Because it will end, and it won't give you the happiness, the security, the acceptance that you seek. Your only hope is to wait on God and to trust that He has not forgotten His promises. And if you begin to doubt that, you're probably not much different from Isaiah's audience. Why do you think Isaiah needed to repeat this promise in Isaiah 14, 1 and 2? But for a moment, if you can, stop focusing on your weak faith and focus instead on your mighty God who will defeat Babylon and all of her imitators. We said it a few times so far. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That statement is emphasizing, amongst other things, God's might and power, not his arbitrariness. You see, God has made promises, and he will keep his promises. And no one can stop him from doing that. Our God does all that he pleases. And it pleases our God to keep his covenant promises, to preserve his covenant people, to restrain and conquer all of his and all of our enemies. And so in light of all that, where would you rather turn for security and acceptance to Babylon and all her imitators and descendants? or to the mighty God who does all that he pleases. Let us pray. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be our guide, be our stay, be our anchor in the storms of this life. Help us to know that you are still God, you are still good, you are still ruling and reigning. Even if Things are going on in our lives or the lives of others around us or in the world at large that we don't understand. Father, help us to know that there is still a plan. It is still being carried out exactly 
how you want it to be. Give us that confidence. and Give us hope in the person of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, who came to this earth to stand in our place so that we might experience joy and blessedness instead of the horrors of the day of the Lord, so that it might transform that day into a day of triumph for your people. God be with us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.